Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Michael Jacobs, Professorial Fellow at the Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute at Sheffield University. Prior to joining Sheffield, Michael was Director of the IPPR Commission on Economic Justice, based at the think tank the Institute for Public Policy Research. From 2004 to 2007, he was a member of the Council of Economic Advisers at the UK Treasury, and until 2010, Michael was a special advisor to Prime Minister Gordon Brown, with responsibility for energy, environment and climate policy. Since leaving government, Michael Jacobs has continued to stay in close touch with leading parliamentarians, and he remains a highly influential figure within Labour policy-making circles, as the party formulates proposals to challenge the government. Michael, you've been involved in Labour policy-making circles for, for many, many years. You're a modest man, but you are still highly influential within the Labour Party. What kind of opportunity do you think Labour has got now to really put forward policies, particularly on the economy, that can appeal to the electorate? Labour is trying to win a majority of votes. That's its purpose. It wants to win the next election. And so it's always looking for where the majority of public opinion is. And I think the interesting thing about this moment is people realise something has gone wrong with the economy. We know that much of this has come from outside. The energy prices were not caused inside the British economy. But the reason that high energy prices and now high food prices, inflation generally, is such a problem is that incomes are too low. We call this a cost of living crisis, but you could equally think of it as a cost of incomes crisis. Incomes now for many people are very low. People in work, uh, we have a minimum, uh, a minimum wage, which is not enough now for most people who are on it to live on, particularly if they've got children. And we have a benefit system, which is not enough to live on. Now, some of that is about the generosity of the welfare system, which is really in the government's control directly. But some of it is about a labour market, which simply doesn't pay enough to workers. And workers now, most of whom are not in unions anymore, as they were when we last had inflation of this kind in the 1970s, unions help push wages up. We have, don't have that mechanism for most workers now. And so we have a problem, in a sense, in the way our economy is structured. And that's, I think, the issue that most people now th uh, will be thinking. That's what we need to get a grip of. You and I are just about to old enough to remember the winter of discontent, the, the, the big dogfight between capital and labour in the 70s and the early 80s. It was, you know, when we sort of came of age as, as young people following the news and, and so on. We've talked about it in the past. Is it really the case that we might not see a lot of industrial action going forward? Yes, only a quarter of people are in trade unions but they're overwhelmingly public sector unions. They provide vital services. Those unions are strong. Some would say they're becoming increasingly militant. And of course, there's a big union battle at P&O now, which is a private sector company. So we could see that wage inflation, price inflation, that wage price spiral that we saw in the 70s, which saw inflation go deep into double digits. I think we're well uh, off any kind of wage price uh, inflationary spiral because there aren't enough pressures in the labour market. It is interesting that the P&O issue has suddenly reminded people that trade unions are rather useful and the minimum wage is rather useful. We've now seen apparently a lot of those new workers not being employed even on our minimum wage. And you can see there where people are beginning to think, well, maybe it would be useful to be in unions. You're quite right that most of the economy that is unionised now is the public sector. And I think the first thing we'll see in this is a, 
is a bit of resistance on the public sector because, of course, that's in the government's control. Lots and lots of workers uh, who are in the public sector are going to see wage increases well below the level of inflation. And I think their unions will kick up a fuss. And I think you could see some industrial action. The problem is, in terms of wages, that the rest of the economy, the three quarters of workers who are not in uh, unions do not have that bargaining power. And of course, lots of them are now on very insecure contracts. If you're on a zero hours contract, or if you're not exactly actually an employee at all, but you're a self-employed contractor, even though you only have one client, and so you really should be employed, you have very little bargaining power. I don't think most of those delivery workers we see on our streets are about to go on strike. So this will become a problem, I think, for them as they realize that they are not able to push their wages up. And this, I think, is a structural issue in the economy. Now, I don't think we're going to see under a conservative government very much movement on this, but I think it would be interesting to see how Labour play this. Labour do plan to uh, to make zero hours contracts much more difficult. Uh, they do plan to give workers more rights from day one and not just after one or two years. And they would like to see more collective bargaining, more union uh, representation and so on. So I think that's an interesting area. And I think the Conservatives will be vulnerable because they have very, very little to say to people who are on those low incomes and those insecure contracts. Now, I want this interview to focus on, on the future. You have advised Labour prime ministers, Labour chancellors, both in office and at shadow cabinet level. Uh, but let's just think back to the spring statement for a moment. The two big numbers that jumped out at me, speaking to your point, Michael Jacobs, is uh, the 3.1%, which is the benefit upgrade at a time when the 7.4% inflation number is now, that's the official estimate. So clearly the benefits are going to lag the increase in the cost of living by a considerable margin. And then it's that 7.4 number itself for inflation. If you've got 5.7 million public sector workers, which we have, and they're not getting a lot of them a pay rise, that is 7.4%, they're losing money too. So both those realities, benefits lagging, inflation, public sector pay lagging inflation, that's going to upend politics, isn't it? I think it is. And I think Rishi Sunak and, of course, Boris Johnson and the rest of the cabinet who approved that spring statement. Do you think they get that? I don't think they do get it. Um, I think it's very hard if you earn as much money as these people do. You know, we know Rishi Sunak is a millionaire personally. We know Boris Johnson uh, has been trying to borrow money from lots of donors because he doesn't feel he can live on the 150000 or so that he gets as prime minister. Um, I think they do find it difficult to understand what it's like to be on £15,000 a year, where literally you are looking at your, uh, your uh, income every week and saying, I don't think I can afford to heat my home. I'm going to have to put the heating off. Or I can't feed myself and my children, so my children get a meal and I don't. And there are a lot of people, there are 19 million people in this country who are on universal credit, disability benefit, sickness benefit, and the basic pension and, and pension credit, which is the lowest level of, of pension. So there's a lot of people who are really going to struggle. And when this month energy bills rise by 50%, and of course, people in work are going to see national insurance rise, although not for the lowest uh, lowest income earners um, uh, that we thought was going to happen. But anybody uh, paying income tax is now going to see a rise in their national insurance. VAT is going to go up. So if you try and go out, you'll find VAT on your entertainment is going up. All of those things, I think, will, be, will make it really hard for lots of people. And I don't think any MP who has a constituency and who is going to constituency surgeries and talking to people in their constituencies will be unable to see this. So I think there will be huge pressure on the government this summer and autumn, uh, running up to the next budget, which will be, uh, we presume, in kind of October, November.
Labour have now got Rachel Reeves as Shadow Chancellor, former Bank of England economist. For many, she does pass the kind of boardroom sniff test. She comes across as a credible person on the economy. How do you think she did when she responded to Rishi Sunak's statement? How do you think the Labour Party did in terms of its response? How should the Labour Party have responded? I think the Labour Party was right to point out what many analysts pointed out, which is that uprating benefits by 3.1% when inflation is 7.4% and will rise is just cruel and callous. And that's not how we should treat the 19 million people who are the lowest income earners in, in society. I think the Labour Party is right to call for a windfall tax on the oil and gas companies, um, not because you'll raise huge sums of money that way, probably two or three billion, but because their profits are the flip side of the energy bills we're all paying. They are literally earning record profits because the world oil price has risen. And that's also why we are now paying record energy bills. So that would be a very sensible thing to just redistribute some of the money, not all of it, from them to uh, energy bill payers. So I think those are two good policies. I think the, the longer term question for the Labour Party is what are they doing about the economy as a whole? Are they really going to try and improve our labour market so people are not on such uh, precarious jobs uh, anymore? We can move to more regularised contracts for more people. Are they going to get the investment rate up, the real problem? we have in our economy is we don't invest enough. Businesses don't invest enough. And those are the longer term questions, which I think I know Rachel Reese is thinking very seriously about, but which we've not yet seen probably enough in public. Um, and I think as we approach general election over the next two years, Labour will have to say, well, what is your alternative way of running the economy? If you don't like this one and it's not working, which I think most of us would accept, what's better? How damaged do you think your party was, Michael Jacobs, the Labour Party, by the policy manifestos of the Corbyn era. You know, as well as I do, when it comes to winning elections, credibility on the economy is key. It's credibility on the economy that's kept Labour out of office for a lot of your lifetime. When Labour was in office under Blair and Brown, it was because it solved that credibility problem. Has your party yet recovered in terms of economic policy management from the Corbyn McDonnell era? I think it's very difficult to uh, to know because the real damage that was caused to Labour in the second of the two Corbyn uh, elections, which was 2019, was Brexit. Labour had many Brexit-supporting voters and many Leave-voting supporters and could not reconcile those two groups. And unsurprisingly, the people who voted Leave felt that they were their democratic vote the victory that they had won in the uh, referendum was being ignored by those people who wanted a second referendum, which was in the end Labour's position. And those people who thought it was a complete economic and, and a diplomatic disaster to leave the EU uh, would not have accepted it if Labour had said, look, we've just got to go with whatever the, uh, the deal is that is on offer from the Conservative Party. So the Labour Party was completely split and they lost voters on both sides of that. And so I think it's very difficult to say what else was going on in the 2019 election with regard to the manifesto. My own feeling is that the 2017 manifesto, which of course saw a much better vote for Labour than people were expecting. Corbyn did really well. Corbyn did actually very well. Yeah. 
which was a slightly more moderate manifesto than 2019, mm. but not hugely. It still called for nationalization of energy companies, railway companies, the post office, um, and water companies. Um, and it called for a big investment program organized through a new national investment bank, which of course the Tories have since set up themselves. That manifesto was pretty popular. If you actually look at the polling on each of those, uh, of those policies, they were all popular and, uh, and was only proposing tax rises on the very rich. Now, quite a lot of people say, we're not really sure whether that adds up, but it, you know, there was a credible claim that this was the top 5% of taxpayers only who would pay more in tax. So the 2017 manifesto, the evidence suggests both from the polling on the policies and from the result that Labour got, that that was a pretty popular policy. Now, 2019 went a bit further, but then was completely overtaken that the, the complete disaster that was Brexit for the Labour Party. You'll know because you're a political nerd like me. If you look at those 2017 election results, it would have taken about 10,000 votes, a mere 10,000 votes across the country, suitably sprinkled across constituencies, which the Tories just held on to, which Labour just lost. And Corbyn would have had a majority. I'm sure that's been on your mind. But let's go back to the 2019 election. I agree with you, your party lost huge numbers of votes because the sort of metropolitan uh, Islington set uh, the, the Labour lawyers, if you like, tried to uh, upend the, the biggest display of British democracy in our, in our history, whatever you think of it. Do you think Keir Starmer should apologise for taking Labour down that route? Because he was the, the, the main spearhead. He was the creator of that Labour policy. He may have much to his credit. There may be many ways in which he's better than Corbyn and he could make a fist of leading Labour into the next election, possibly to win. But does he need to apologise to those red wall voters in particular for ignoring them, for disdaining their Brexit vote? I don't think an apology does much good looking backwards. Uh, Brexit is done, we're, we're out of the EU, and I think Keir Starmer wants to look forward. I would say that um, at some level, we need to acknowledge that um, a lot of people felt as if they weren't being properly listened to. And the fact that effectively it was, I mean, I don't agree that it's just people living in Islington. There were sure. Remain voters all over the country. Absolutely. And, um, but it was people who, if you look at the, the statistics, people with higher education, people in white collar jobs, people who think of themselves as middle class, who mostly voted Remain in the Labour Party, and a lot of people who think of themselves as working class, who do manual work, who haven't been to university, who voted uh, to leave. Not exclusively yeah, on either side. That's roughly right. But, but, and for a group of people to say, who are educated, middle class jobs, to say to people who are, who've not been to university with working class jobs, we don't think your vote really should be the end of it, is scornful. And I think that has been damaging to Labour, and I think Labour has learnt from that. And never again, I would say, can we see that division. And this is why it's really important, in my view, that what Keir Starmer does is try and unite those two constituencies. Um, culturally, those, two, those look like two different constituencies. And obviously, there are some Conservatives who really want to play up the differences, who are using so-called culture wars, identity politics and things, to kind of force differences out in the open. But actually, when you look at it, most people want the same thing. They want a decent job for themselves and for their young people coming into the labour market with a decent contract and decent wages. They want good schools, a, a health service that is funded enough to give us all uh, uh, a decent health care. They want social care for the elderly. They want an economy that is, uh, uh, that's generating uh, incomes. Um, and they want uh, a, a, politician, a, a political class, a political system they can trust. Um, and they want housing. 
Now, that's everybody. That really is everybody, um, barring a few people who can just escape from society because they're so wealthy, um, who are never going to vote Labour. So that is a very broad constituency for the things that Labour believes in. And Labour should appeal across that divide that opened up in Brexit in a way the Brexit referendum gave that divide in British society, a kind of cultural divide between more conservative people culturally conservative people and more metropolitan liberal people. It gave it an opportunity to be expressed in votes. Labour needs to say, no, those are not two groups in terms of our policymaking. We can appeal to all of them because basically you all want the same things. That's the challenge, I think. And I think Keir Starman and Rachel Reeves absolutely know that. And that's their aim. Let's talk a little bit, Michael, about this windfall tax. It is one of the most eye-catching policies that Labour has on the stocks at the moment. You and I have discussed it during my On The Money show. You've pointed out that it's been proven in the courts. Tony Blair had a windfall tax on the then privatised utilities. Geoffrey Howe, the Tory Chancellor, had a windfall tax on the banks in the early 1980s. Do you think this could fly? Do you think the Tories even could actually adopt this? Because I'm getting lots of phone calls from quite high up Tories asking me my view of it. Uh, I think it could. I, uh, in the end, the Chancellor is going to need to spend some more money. I don't see how that the Conservative government can get through this cost of living crisis, which is this month about to get very much worse and is going to really hurt people without spending some more money. We know that they're not uprating benefits by enough and so on. They've got public sector pay demands and so on. Um, the Chancellor doesn't want to borrow more. His big ambition, which he's set through his fiscal rules, they're his fiscal rules, nobody else's, by the way, so he could change them if he wanted to, but he wants to get debt falling and borrowing falling. Falling. So he wants he needs to raise some more tax under his own lights and really taking it off the uh, oil and gas companies who are earning absolutely record profits, most of which, of course, goes to foreign shareholders. They're 90 percent owned by foreigners, not by British uh, pension funds, um, is really a very simple way of doing it. There's a very easy mechanism to do it because we already have a special tax rate for uh, companies that operate in the North Sea that could simply be increased, as it has been in the past, including by Conservative Chancellor George Osborne. So this does look like a pretty sensible thing to do. They are friendless politically. Nobody is going to defend uh, um, the oil and gas companies when they're asked for a bit more money. Um, and it wouldn't be the first energy policy, of course, that the Tories had stolen from Labour, since, of course, the energy cap was also a Labour idea, completely rubbish by the Conservatives the until they adopted. But the principle of retrospective taxation, you make money under a certain tax regime, fair enough, and then the state says, actually, we want more of that money after the event. There is a danger there, Michael. There is a danger, and that's why I don't think the Conservatives would do it retrospectively, right. which is why I actually thought Rishi Sunak might do it in this budget. Mm. Because although Labour first made this policy announcement in January, and it wasn't absolutely clear whether even Labour would do it retrospectively, mm. that is, whether it would be done on last year's taxes, mm. last year's profits. Um, Labour, of course, wasn't in government, so it didn't really need to answer that mm. question. But the Conservatives just could do it for future profits. Mm. The energy price is likely to stay high, so there will be these extra profits that are being earned even in the future. So I, I, had, a, I had a little bet on, I mean, not brilliant odds, because I didn't really think they were going to do it, but I had a small side bet that Rishi Sunak might actually do it in this uh, spring statement. And what he would say was, no, I was opposed to a retrospective windfall tax, but taxing them in the future is perfectly fine. Um, and he could still do it in the spring, in, in the autumn uh, budget. You say auto. I think there's going to be a statement in the summer. Well, I, I, think, I don't think he can get away with not having a statement in the summer. I think that... that Do you the, agree? Uh, I'm not sure, because Rishi Sunak has been tone-deaf to... 
the mood of the country uh, uh, in this spring statement, um, and uh, and also in in the autumn when he uh, he removed the uplift to twenty pounds a week uplift to universal credit that had been introduced in the pandemic. I think the public would have been very happy to see that stay. So he has his views that and uh, and he has so far stuck to them. He will come under a lot of pressure. I think a lot will depend on Conservative MPs, and this is the the, the really interesting thing. Uh, I think as as those constituency MPs go back to their uh, their voters uh, over the next few weeks and see how much this is going to hurt. So yes, it's certainly possible there could need to be a summer uh, a summer statement. Final few questions, Michael. One of the policy areas that you've really focused on over the years, uh, advising governments, shadow cabinets, and I know the UN as well, is is climate policy. Would you accept that we need to slightly dial down the net zero? rhetoric, even the net zero policies, given that this is now a cost of living crisis, would you accept that there's a case to be made for not putting those costs of transition onto the fuel bills of ordinary people, 25% of your electricity bill still going to renewable subsidies, given that the poor, those on lower incomes, pay disproportionately more on their energy than the wealthy? I really want to make a distinction between two different things you've said there. One is, should we dial down the net zero ambition? And the other one is, should we put the costs of green energy, which are still being paid, onto bills? So let's deal with the first of those. No, we shouldn't. This is absolutely not the time to say that climate change doesn't matter anymore. We just a couple of weeks ago had the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the scientists saying that the impacts are going to be worse uh, greater and quicker than they already thought they were going to be, and we already thought they were going to be a catastrophe. And of course, the best way of weaning ourselves off volatile oil prices and oil that comes from Russia and any other states we don't like, like Saudi Arabia or Iran, is, we like Saudi Arabia. Well, now. we do now. <laughs> um, is to is to go to renewables and to energy saving, which is the kind of hidden. Fifth fuel, as people have sometimes called it. Let's just not waste so much energy in leaky homes that are not insulated properly. So this is actually the moment to say, this is the moment of transition. Let's do that renewable energy, energy efficiency transition. The other question that you raise is about where the subsidies should be uh, how they should be paid for. And at the moment, we put them on bills. So basically, we give a little bit of subsidy, not much now, to wind energy, solar energy. And the energy companies can then charge that back to the consumer. There is another way of doing it, which is that government pays the subsidy. So it would come out of taxes. Now, we'd still have to pay it, but taxes are a fairer way of doing it because taxes are more related to the income that people have, whereas energy bills are not. They're inversely related to your income. You pay more if Indeed. you're poor as a proportion of your income. So there is a case for saying, let's not have those subsidies on the bills, but let's have them out of taxation. But that isn't the same thing as saying, let's not do this renewable stuff at all. And let's just make one thing very clear. People are arguing for now, uh, particularly on the right, are saying, why don't we get more oil and gas out of the North Sea? Why don't we do fracking? So basically replacing Russian... You're not a fracker. I'm not a fracker. I'm not a fracker. <laughs> and I just about say that uh, on television. Look at your hard hat. The, uh, the Hive is vest. <laughs> we, don't, we shouldn't be replacing Russian oil and gas with British oil and gas for one very simple reason that's nothing to do with climate, which is it takes forever to get that stuff out of the ground. And when we get it out of the ground, it costs the same as the oil that we're buying from Russia or anywhere else because there is a global market in these things. The average time it takes to get oil out of the, out of the North Sea 
uh, from starting a, a expiration to actually extracting it is 28 years. Now, in 28 years' time, that'll be 2050, which is when, to, when we're meant to be net zero. Now, that's the average. We might get some out earlier. But if we even got it out 10 years before that, would the oil and gas companies say, hang on, we've only then got 10 years of life of that uh, gas, oil and gas field to use before we go net zero, and therefore it's not going to pay its full value back and we'll have a stranded asset. So I'm not sure that there will be that much investment in them in new North Sea that can't come out pretty quickly. And we know that fracking, the reason the Conservative government, not the Labour government, the Conservative government stopped fracking was because they could not find a constituency where they could get it done because everybody locally hated it. As somebody said, what we need is a Conservative constituency that has no people living in it because people won't have fracking. So let's not go down the replacing fossil fuels by fossil fuels. Let's go down the renewable energy route, the energy storage route, and the energy saving route. Well, Michael Jacobs, it's great to have you here on Money Talks, and thanks sincerely for your contribution to my show. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.